live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. So I appreciate your point saying that, yeah. you know, you have to kind of engage in that sort of work. Um, yeah. th- there are a couple questions here that I want to lift up while we're talking about the international implications of, of, of Jewish traditions of, of socialism. So I'm going to try to blend these two together. One um, sentiment that I think is connected here is, you know, when you take uh, the question of boycott, divestment and and sanctions and and the movement that is around that. And when you look at um, and again, riffing here from this question, uh, Israel being started by uh, socialist uh, Jews and and, in part, at least that that certainly seems to be a case that that could be made. Um, How how does one think through? how um, the question of complex traditions of Jewish faith relate to Israel. And this person is saying, as a socialist Zionist, I think particularly that that's the vantage point from which they want to put the question on the table. One, two, the anti-Semitism that has occurred in the Trump administration. Um, how, how does one sit um, the anti-Semitism, um, some of the, the complex origins of, of, of Israel with um, what's happening with the BDS movement. We'd love to hear you, you weigh, weigh in here. <laughs> no, no small question for us to, to wade through. Only you could deliver such a complicated question in such a loving way. Um, only you. Um, uh, let's start with, um, I guess let's start with this question of Zionist socialism even as it relates to the founding of the state. And you had mentioned Buber at the top. Um, and, you know, uh, Buber, uh, along with Judah Magnus, who was one of the founders of Hebrew University, its first president, um, who was a distinguished reform rabbi um, back in America. Um, they, they founded something called Brit Shalom, which was an early, the earliest iteration of a peace movement, uh, very early on pre-state. Uh, understanding that um, as many of the early Zionist thinkers uh, were trying to address pre-state while they were still organizing in Europe, Basel, Switzerland, where their conferences were, et cetera, this question of the, the Zionist enterprise will never succeed if we, don't, if we don't figure out now, early on, a structural accommodation um, with uh, the Palestinian Arabs who are living here. Um, and, um, that was, that was critical and ultimately something that, uh, the, the inability to carry it out is what ultimately prompted Magnus to return to America. Uh, and Buber, as, as you know, never was able to fully realize it. And he pretty much ended his theological career, uh, toward the end of his life, 
people often like to point out in a very snarky way, uh, living in a beautiful house uh, in Jerusalem uh, that he had uh, bought and taken over that uh, was prior owned by uh, a a wealthy Arab family uh, that had fled in the independence war. Um, And so, you know, the opposition often, you know, used that as a kind of taint uh, mm-hmm. on, on Buber's own reputation. So it, it's it's so vastly complicated, um, you know, anytime we, we enter into the fray of the conflict. But it's important to note, early on, Buber was certainly one of the Zionists who declared that there's no way Zionism will, able to be, will be able to be fully realized until there is uh, an accommodation made uh, to share the land and, and, and so forth. All right. So... Um, the kibbutz movement itself, you know, uh, not to jump to the conclusion here, but the kibbutz movement has completely transformed itself uh, um, uh, in, a, in a kind of post-1960s era. Like, that was essentially uh, the last heyday of it. Um, and, um, and at this stage now, uh, very, very few people who are actually raised on a kibbutz, the numbers are significantly smaller than they once were, uh, mm-hmm. longer want that. Uh, you know, young people pretty much around the world uh, seek uh, cosmopolitan experiences, uh, gravitate more toward the cities, uh, and, and, you know, and um, don't want to live in the kind of communal settings with the kind of communal strictures uh, that the kibbutz movement demanded. And um, it, as a movement itself, it's, com- it's completely reinvented itself. They're tourist B&Bs, they're factories, they produce things, but they have workers who come onto the site of the kibbutz to do the work. It's a completely different entity than it once was. Which is another complicating factor. Yeah, go ahead, interrupt me. Yeah, yeah. What, what is, because um, I, I want to make sure that, that we're taking seriously both threads of, of, of the conversation tonight for, from both the uh and, and I'm, I'm doing my best to kind of thread from the comments i, I would again invite folks to to share in in the q a uh as well for, from the socialist uh dimension of the conversation and from uh the jewish dimension of the conversation what, what would you say is is at stake uh on both ends because this is a conversation that um and it, it, it is, is deeply self-involving, and I mean self-involving in a kind of collective self uh, as it relates to um, BDS, the, the mm-hmm. kind of cosmopolitanism that, that you're talking about. Yes. Um, those who are wondering, you know, where do you situate um, a Jewish voice for peace? Where do you situate a certain kind of reform Judaism? You know, h- how does one... Um, have a kind of Jewish informed socialism kind of way in and what one might presume charitably is an interest of of of, of power sharing particularly with workers in mind in the interest of um, deliberative democracy to an earlier thread of our conversation mm-hmm. um, would we'll love to hear you um, weigh in a bit there okay with pleasure um, look, I'll say something that, you know, might not win me any friends, but this has been my position going on at least 10 years. I certainly spoke this from the pulpit at Beth Elohim and, um, I, I, BDS, I have no 
concern for BDS. And I don't mean, you know, I have no regard. I, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a toothless tiger. Um, I think its purpose, uh, is clouded. I think it's radically ineffective. Um, and I think the proof of its ineffectiveness is what we've seen just over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, there is a whole, you know, reworking of relationships, uh, in the Middle East. And when you have Bahrain and UAE, now Sudan, the Israeli papers today. Would you mind just kind of briefly defining uh, BDS? Someone is um, in the comments uh, asking if you could just do just a quick primer for, for folks. Oh, BDS stands for Boycott, uh, uh, Divestment, and Sanction. Divestment and Sanction. And it's a movement that uh, uh, kind of inspired by the anti-apartheid movement uh, for South Africa, uh, the, the, those who founded the BDS movement thought, well, we can do the same for Palestine and we can, we can kind of break Israel economically. We can isolate Israel diplomatically in this, in, in, in a similar manner to what happened in South Africa and thereby finally grant equal rights and statehood for the Palestinian people. It's, it, it's just, it's just not been effective. You know, you, you, you have a, a few famous musicians who won't go to Israel. It's, it's had no economic uh, impact if, by any measurable effect. Uh, once in a while, the EU countries, you know, some of the EU countries will sign on and they'll sign off. It's just, it's, it's been an ineffective tool, um, uh, you know, in, in, and while all this time has been spent in these ridiculous arguments, is, is BDS anti-Semitic because it delegitimates uh, uh, the quest for Jewish nationhood? Uh, is it a legitimate tactic? Uh, there are boycotts. There are Jews who are boycotting businesses in the West Bank, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, in all of the last 15, 20 years, the Jewish population in the, in the West Bank has doubled, tripled, quadrupled, um, and Israel continues to grow and develop its relationships with Arab countries. Uh, Israel's relationship with China is incredibly strong. Its relationship with India is incredibly strong. These are major world powers, yeah. obviously. So it's like, what do you, you know, it's the wrong tactic. So I, I actually don't waste my time even arguing with people about it. You know, not, it's not going to work. You're not going to pull it off. You, you know, we and and when you talk to young Israelis, I mean, I'm in Israel a couple times every year, not since mm -hmm. the pandemic, of course. But you talk to young Israelis who are active um, there, and this is very Frank Frankfurt School of them. A, a lot of the younger thinkers are actually trying to do what you sort of closed your comments with, which is kind of look for what are these third ways? What are the ways that, what are the, what are the deliberative political options that are in front of us so we can be, think of other ways to actually solve this crisis? Let, let's actually bridge, bridge there because there's a great question um, and, and want to, to, to honor where, where you were ending. You know, what are other ways to, 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 to solve this crisis um, that, you know, I, I would imagine, um, you know, take... Um, organizing around particularities and build, you know, broad-based support perhaps around that. So, you know, mm -hmm. when, when we talk about, um, you know, whether it's questions of residential displacement or annexation, yeah. the, the question yeah. of housing insecurity, right? Yes. It, it's something yes. that I think you can build a deep, meaningful worker-oriented 
collaboration around. And, and the question on the table here is, you know, what does the uh, atheist, humanist, Jewish, socialist tradition look like compared to the religious tradition? And, and I want to bring um, Benjamin Balthazar as, as a kind of my guide through territory that I'm, I'm not ultra familiar with, but but I'll, I'll, I'll share an argument that he kind of interpolates. He would name uh, Karl Marx, uh, Spinoza, um, and, and in some regards, some of the Frankfurt School as, as kind of a, a wide sort of uh, stream, if you will, of a kind of humanist Jewish socialist tradition that yes. might look different than where someone, I'm not sure if he would accept the characterization, but someone like a, a Michael Walzer who may sit on both sides of, of this tradition. So how would you compare the kind of atheist, humanist, Jewish socialist traditions against the religious ones? Yeah, that, I think that's that, something that, 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 that that's a really, really great question. Um, I think I have the rabbi's name correctly uh, or correct. Uh, Emil G. Hirsch, uh, a very famous turn of the century rabbi who was in Chicago. And um, besides New York, uh, you know, with, which had the garment industry, uh, yeah. Chicago it was the second largest collection of socialist Jews turn of the century, right? The great organizing of Jewish socialists, Jewish workers, uh, yeah. New York and Chicago. Yep. Even more than Russia, by the way, and uh, which is a, a myth buster. And um, so... Uh, one of Emil G. Hirsch's congregants was a union buster. And yeah. his Jewish workers were protesting him. And on it's a, a true story. And on Rosh Hashanah, uh, he gave a sermon and he told the story of Samuel criticizing King David for his sin mm. with Bathsheba and sending Uriah to die. And which ends famously with Samuel with David getting mad and how could this guy do this to this poor little sheep owner? And mm-hmm. uh, Samuel says to him, you are that You're man. The man. You're mm-hmm. the man. And, and uh, Hirsch looked down at the factory owner and then said, you are oppressing your fellow Jew. You are oppressing your worker in front of the whole congregation, right? That's that's basically all we got. That's all rabbis really have today when you're no longer inside of a context in which the rabbinic power can force someone to do do something. You only have the moral voice, right? Heschel didn't have a congregation in which he could force his Jews. Maybe if Heschel would have had a congregation and he would have had uh, 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 10 New York City landlords and he knew that three of them were slumlords made and they, they believed that whatever the rabbi said they would do, you know, 200 years ago, maybe the rabbi could pull them into the room and say, you're going to do this or we're going to kick you out of the community. You're going to treat these people right. Today, no one listens to their rabbis. And so all that's left for, for young that's Jews. A, that's a strong, that's a strong claim, Rabbi Bobby. Do, do, you, do you intend to stand behind it? It's absolutely positively true. Trust me. It's true. Well, and, why do you think that's the case? Because, because if you again going back to this enlightenment idea, authority has shifted. Right, more Jews talk to their therapist every week than they go see their rabbi. So you could argue Freudian psychology, if you will, has defeated the rabbi in terms of a moral voice that people try to to reckon with in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the greatest the greatest Jewish minds once freed from the ghetto. Uh, you know, uh, can do great work in constitutional law, can do great work in, 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 in out in the greater secular world. 
the authority has shifted. And so, mm-hmm. and so, and so what coalitions of young Jews or Jews who care about Jewish mor- moral values, you know, take that identity and bring it to forums like this, like DSA and, and, and say, okay, I want to be a part of a greater whole and an act and, and, and unite with, with a diverse array of people in order mm-hmm. to actualize the values that we all share and that we believe in. Mm-hmm. The Jewishness of it at this point is a kind of an overlay. Mm. That, 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 that's, I think, a, a powerful point about um, the role of religion in um, perhaps particularly uh, in, in advanced industrial economic context and settings. Uh, someone's making the point in the chat that uh, the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox uh, still listen to, to the rabbi. Yes, um, yes. Which um, per, perhaps is, is, a, is, a, is a fair point to to make, but but um, the wider point I want to make, and then want to to transition into talking a bit about um, Jewish socialism and and, and, and politics in, in particular, uh, and because we're kind of weaving in and out of, of questions, um, we'd love to move through a, a couple more, and then we'll kind of swing it open uh, a, a bit more widely and deliberately. Um, you know, the the the, the push that that I have Rabbi Bachman a bit on. It, it is a push of curiosity rather than an outright assertive claim. Um, it seems like it, it could be said that, you know, if you think of a labor union faith alliance, or, you know, I think of someone like a Rabbi Michael Feinberg, who's doing great work with the Labor Religion Coalition in New York City. You know, if you think of the kind of uh, social movement push that a lot of um, Jewish faith leaders, generally rabbis and, and, and others, have in, say, a Poor People's Campaign. We had a uh, conversation with, with Reverend Liz Theo Harris um, mm-hmm. a couple months ago. Sorry, Could I missed it that. Be, what'd you say? I said, I'm sorry I missed that. She's a great scholar. Oh, my, my. What, 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 there's a uh, go to religious socialism where you can take part in them. So you, you, you just gave me an occasion, Rabbi Bachman, to kind of do, do a quick plug. But if to synthesize quickly, um, could we not make the claim that a militant faith community labor union alliance added to that with social movement organizing uh, and then the kind of activist orientation of a DSA, could that not be a space where Jewish faith traditions and all their complexity might gain a density of, of social force, uh, d- despite, and I'm being provocative here, Rabbi Bachman, dis- despite your claim that uh, r- rabbis don't, don't have that much uh, cultural influence? Could it be? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be difficult on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going back to Gomper's observation, there aren't, there, there is not a, there is no longer a mass of Jewish workers. Mm-hmm. And so that's problematic for organizing a mass of Jews. Okay. It's a challenge, right? It's a mass uh, politic point that you want to make here, that organizing on the basis of Jewish identity. Yeah, we're... we're solely, we're, may, may be tough. Yeah, we're at best allies. And, 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 and stalwart and, 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 and passionate and supporting, but in, unless we had a co-equal number of Jewish workers... Um, 
that that kind of had the demonstrable numbers that you'll find uh, in the African American community, or the Latinx community, or the Asian community. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're 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 sort of left as uh, fundraisers and lawyers and organizers, but we're not the masses. You know, if you want to talk about a mobilization for change, mm-hmm. and and you know, outside of socialism altogether, one of the one of the you know great examples to look at, and we've spoken about this before, is what happened after Dr. King, even it was even happening before he was killed, but like once Dr. King was killed and and the black power movement asserted itself more in the civil rights movement, there was definitely this sense of, you know, we don't need the Jews alongside with us. You know, we don't, we don't want them in leadership positions um, because this isn't their issue. Uh, even if we were fighting racism and anti-Semitism, which is obviously still prevalent, but the more burning issue was the racism. And, and similarly, the, you know, Jews, we care about workers being treated fairly. There just aren't a lot of Jewish workers anymore. We're really, we have, we've become, you know, middle to upper middle class. We're bourgeois. So, there's a number of ways to, to, to go with this. I mean, I, I do think that there are moments where you could, could look at a Students for Democratic Society and, and the Black Panthers uh, at a certain point in this history, SNCC working together. A lot of um, that collaboration, you know, spurred on by, by Jewish folks in, 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 in particular, though, though not solely. Um, so, so there does seem to be a threat to pull on that. I, I'm going to yes. switch gears and, and land on something I think is, is, is quite close to, to DSA in particular and talk about Jewish traditions of, of politics. So, you know, you take a candidate like Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. who staged, um, by some accounts, the most successful presidential campaigns in U.S. political history across two cycles, right, in 16 and in 20, um, in terms of, you know, money raised, in terms of primaries won, in terms of... Uh, those who, with a variety of different um, policy platforms, are organizing under a kind of political uh, revolution, you know, pushing for things like worker co-ops, in some cases public banks, you know, the, the, the works. Uh, so the question is, where do we situate Sanders within a Jewish socialist political tradition that might also include, you know, um, women who are doing fantastic labor organizing, as well as, you know, Congress members like uh, Meyer London in New York and Victor Berger in, in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, well, you just stole my fire. So Where does Sanders fall on that continuum of organizing and socialist Congress members? Yeah. I mean, look, um, you know, there was an interesting quote I read somewhere over the weekend in one of the papers that um, this very debate about the Biden campaign and and the degree to which uh, he is or is not listening to uh, Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders advisors. And the analogy, of course, was used with Roosevelt, right? Roosevelt was by no means, FDR, that is, was by no means a socialist, but a number of clear socialist ideas uh, were able to make it into the White House, were able to be uh, passed into law uh, and, you know, were it not for the mendacity of the Republican Party over the last 50 years trying to undo it all, 
um, you know, we wouldn't be in the fight that we're in right now. So San Bernie Sanders is very much in the tradition of, of, of Jewish socialists like Mayor London, who was the first socialist elected here in New York and represented the Lower East Side. There's a Mayor London school on Henry Street, actually. Um, and uh, Victor Berger was the first in Congress, uh, of course. Um, uh, Eugene Debs, a very successful run for president as well. You know, for many years, the forward, the forwards, which was the socialist Yiddish paper on the Lower East Side, the building still stands with the Yiddish on the side of it on the front. And, 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 and there are these uh, carved heads on the front of the forward building that have LaSalle, that have Karl Marx. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a beautiful thing to see. But the point is that a lot of these political leaders represented, certainly for the time, uh, mm -hmm. The Jewish masses, certainly Berger, the, the sewer socialists in Milwaukee, which really he was a part of, mm. were all actually Jamie Raskin, who's in Congress. Talk, talk, talk more about sewer socialists, because um, I want to make sure we're, we're unpacking that a bit, because I think that the sewer socialist tradition in some ways has a thread that you can pull forward in participatory budgeting. I and totally agree with you. City funding I of, of public um, banks and so forth. Yeah, and so one of the original sewer socialists, Max Raskin, uh, who, who rose to become a judge in Milwaukee, so his great nephew is Jamie Raskin, who's in Congress, you know, uh, just to give you, a, you know, an example. And uh, the sewer socialists, you know, like they like they sounded, they were they were organized around questions of workers' rights and questions of infrastructure and, you know, if you will, in industrial centers, they were uh, it was a uh, they were the, the the socialist organizers who brought to bear um, uh, the variety of issues that concerned workers in those in those places. What the, the difference between Bernie Sanders and say Mayor London Victor Berger. Go, go, go there. I was just about to push on the, the, the yeah. difference. The difference is that they were organizing Jews as Jews. Mm -hmm. And Bernie Sanders is a Jew who's organizing the, if you will, the masses. Right. So he's in a, in a, in a way he exemplifies uh, both, you know, stereotypically in Kitsch with that thick Brooklyn accent. And he's such an angry Jew. And it's fantastic just to listen to him talk. Right. Um, but he all, but he represents that prophetic tradition about about the need for equality, about the need for uh, 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 the fair treatment of the worker, about the need for universal health care, about the need for free college education. All of these things, which they're not inherently Jewish values, but we could certainly draw back. Any good scholar of Judaism could could take Bernie's values and root them in not only the Hebrew prophets, but in in mandates that come out of the Talmudic tradition as well. Uh, it's just that he doesn't have the Jewish masses behind him in the way that earlier socialist organizing political leaders did. That's a, that's a, um, I think, important point to make um, about the context of um, the development, perhaps, of, of American local institutions, but also a, a, a demographic point. Um, Robert uh, Klugerman uh, draws the point uh, that, that Sanders is also uh, not religious. Uh, I'd, I'd push slightly on, on that point. I, uh, from the basis of, I moderated a uh, roundtable with um, Sanders and um, Corner with some, some, some others, where he was making the point, interestingly enough, fresh off a trip from the Vatican, that um, 
his sense of, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, solidarity with um, oppressed folks um, and this idea that um, the common good in a top-down um, economy requires, um, you know, commitment to almost perennial struggle. In, in some ways, uh, and again, um, hopefully responsibly paraphrasing, that emerged from a kind of Jewish cultural identity, even if not necessarily an explicitly religious one. Do, do you think that distinction is, is a fair one to, to draw between Jewish cultural identity that may have religious overtones, but may not be connected to a matrix, a matrix of belief of attending a synagogue necessarily? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, one of the things I came across uh, in the... Um, uh, in some of the reading that I did just to kind of prepare for tonight was a paper that uh, Andy Robenbach, who's at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, wrote. And he was one of the students of George Mossy, part of the New Left in the 60s in Madison. And he talks about the emergence from the Frankfurt School about this notion of the Jew as other. Um, you know, because one of the crises for the Frankfurt School, of course, was that they were uh, they were confronting not just the values of socialism that they were seeking to articulate, but then they were uh, uh, confronting anti-Semitism, and um, and they were and none of them, though many of them were Jewish uh, by birth, let's say, none of them were by any measure observant. Eric Fromm came from a Orthodox family, but he was never a practitioner. For yeah. a while, Adorno, I think, uh, Adorno's mother was Catholic, father Jewish. I mean, they, they had the, the, the thinnest of Jewish culture to draw upon, but they were, if you will, we would say today, I guess, they were othered as Jews, of course, by the, by the, by the traditional German anti-Semitism and then by the rise of Nazism, right? And most come to New York um, uh, to get away from it all. So the, again, going back to the earlier analogy that we started with, the Jew who is no longer in the ghetto and the Jew who no longer has to observe Jewish law because the strictures of the ghetto society make him do so because he lives at, under the sanction of the rabbi, mm -hmm. uh, gets to define himself uh, as, as an other in part because the greater society also sees him that way. Um, and 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 the very interesting kind of overlay there is that it, it it ends up comporting well with the Hebrew prophetic tradition, which again, you know, rabbis love to tell their congregants, you know, what law is repeated more in the Bible than any other law: be kind to the stranger because you were strangers in a strange land. Uh, Thirty-six times it's mentioned in the Bible, even more than you know, honor your mother and father. Yep. So. Uh, so that sense of, if you will, encoded, embedded otherness uh, is really there to draw upon. So for, you know, for Bernie to articulate that in that in, in that context, he's 100 percent right. Um, but 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 it but it's but it's based, if you will, on a on a, on a relatively thin layer of Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Which would seem to imply then, um, to, to your point about perhaps maybe a relatively um, thin layer of Jewish culture, the importance of Jewish faith traditions, and perhaps as well as other faith traditions in a culturally pluralistic uh, context, where most religious traditions, including Jewish ones, don't have the kind of... Um, 
social density that they may have once enjoyed to organize in more of a mosaic kind of fashion where you're pulling together different streams and different threads of uh, of organizing, whether that's, you know, some of the kind of healing and restorative justice traditions that you see in the movement for Black lives, whether that is um, a kind of deep tradition of perhaps subversive memory, um, you know, remembering the legacy of variously constituted ancestors. Certainly there's a rich tradition of, of Jewish ancestors that, you know, have been called on, are perhaps being called on as, as we speak, right, to kind of inspire uh, storming the barricades or, or whatever the, the, the case may, may be. Um, so final question, then want to swing it open to folks for, for questions. Uh, interestingly enough, as I am talking about um, raising more questions, the, the, there was initially strong threat, and now it's kind of petering out a bit. So uh, Y'all get them ready. We're about to go there soon. Um, Want to talk a bit about um, Rosa Luxemburg, um, a Jewish woman, uh, in many ways, a kind of grassroots political theorist uh, whose legacy inspired um, a think tank bearing her name uh, and who, interestingly enough, uh, argued that um, workers should be self-organized um, not only within, but also uh, beyond political parties, uh, not only within unions, but also outside of unions. And, and what's at stake for her is a kind of uh, connectivity to political institutions, to unions, but also an independent ability to exercise uh, power and demand stuff for workers that's not beholden to uh, these other kind of infrastructures entirely. Uh, mm-hmm. And some scholars have, have argued that there's a kind of... Um, prefigurative tradition in, in Luxembourg, meaning that um, the socialist, egalitarian, uh, maybe even utopian world that we want to create, where you have workers as um, the producers and, and in a large sense, directors of society, is, is anticipated in things like uh, cooperatives, in things like um, a deep commitment to to mutual aid and collective organized for that purpose. So I'm wondering if you could could talk a bit about what that kind of tradition, uh, which I think Luxembourg is is not the only, but certainly a good representative of of worker self-organization. Where do we launch that in in contemporary um, modes of, of, of Jewish socialism? That's a really good question. You know, I, I always say to my daughters, I, I, I hope I live to be like 120 just, just so I can like read the histories of, of this era, you know, um, um, and see where this is all going to play out. Because what's interesting is, you know, as the American economy is clearly uh, kind of heading toward a cliff, um, I mean, this you know, these, these reports of, of the vast amounts of wealth just in the last nine months that were made by, by people, um, you know, primarily in finance, um, you know, while millions are out of work or can't eat, it's, it is remarkable that there's not just more mass violence. It, it's, it's, it, it, it boggles my mind in a way. I feel like, in Europe, in France, or Italy, or Spain, I feel like people would be rioting um, uh, around these issues. But here, where Americans are still relatively 
sleepy when it comes to this stuff, you know, with the exception of of the Black Lives Matter marches, which have been just such a great source of inspiration, um, where people have finally really uh, woken up. Um, by the way, Cory Booker's speech on the Senate floor today was amazing about uh, about this particular question, about what's actually happening. People are really uh, are waking up in a way. And so to answer your question, I think that where there's very interesting potential is if our economy is being is going to have to be restructured in order mm-hmm. to guarantee the things that clearly uh, younger people overwhelmingly support, mm-hmm. um, then there is going to have to be a reckoning for how to organize that to make that all possible. Um, right? People say this is the first generation that won't be able to make more money than their parents made. This will be the first generation that will is going to is putting off marriage and child rearing to be even later, right? The, and that's due to vast arrays of inequality, vast stress uh, on the system. So there has to be a restructuring and, and the organizing that will be required for that, the elections that will have to be won in order for that to happen mm-hmm. uh, is vast because we just... I just don't see Americans having the stomach uh, for violent revolution. I just, I just don't see it, you know? Um, And so, and, and I, you know, George Mosse used to say to his students in Madison, he said it particularly to his students in the sixties, the famous quote uh, of his uh, revolution is a wonderful thing, but the problem is you have to step over dead bodies. And, and I think the last time we had that in this country was obviously the civil war which was, you know, 600,000 lives were lost in the Civil War. Uh, and that was, a, that was a truly just war. The vast majority of those lives lost were Confederate lives. What stomach do people have for violence? And if, they, and if we don't, then you have to ask yourself the question, what, what organizing structures need to be put into place yeah. um, that can actually, over the span of the next 50 to 100 years, can actually bring about the changes that are going to be necessary. And that's, you know, that, that I would argue is, is the work of, of organizations like DSA to figure out how are you, how are you going to do that? To, to figure out and, and push on those questions. Absolutely. Um, I want to open it up for, for, for questions for folks to um, <laughs> hop, hop, hop in this question. Um, I, I have a follow-up there uh, in my back pocket. Uh, Rabbi, in case I need to to pull it out, but would love to make sure that folks can can hop in explicitly. This is your invitation. Uh, I've given a uh, repeated um, door opening for folks to wade in through the Q and A, but it appears that perhaps this is the preferred medium. And you know, hey, uh, I'm willing to be flexible and malleable. So uh, whichever route folks prefer, whether the Q&A channel or the, the chat, feel free to, to hop in. Uh, and while we're soliciting those questions to keep the content of the conversation moving, um, one could say, and I've heard it said um, in some conservative Christian context, perhaps maybe there's a, a conservative Jewish uh, analog, I'm not necessarily sure, um, that you know, if you look at the, the Ten Commandments, uh, and I'm going to make a deliberately provocative argument, if, if you look at the Ten Commandments, uh, which among um, them say, you know, thou shalt not steal, could not one infer a recognition of 
maybe even a divine, um, how have I heard the case of taking, maybe the kind of divine sanction for private property. So that, that this idea of the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, which is certainly a favorite text for uh, socialists, uh, autonomous political folks, anarchists, and all the rest run to, to destabilize the idea of private property. Uh, doesn't the idea of thou shalt not steal assume that uh, everyone in fact has their own vine and fig tree to some extent um, or, or should have that as um, private property, let me see if I can push it, as, as a kind of utopian ideal since there's divine law to kind of sanction it. Um, what would your response be uh, to that claim of, of private property being upheld? Because uh, of course that is very much at stake in the question of what socialists are organizing around. So how would you respond to, to that reading of that particular command one, and then two, um, kind of going back to where we started a bit, um, there is a uh, kind of battle over the public narrative of, of Jewish religious tradition. Uh, so we'd love to hear you respond to, to how we read the command, and then two, um, how it's mobilized to deal with questions of communal and socialized understandings of property versus private. I think you, I think you would be firmly standing on, you know, two strong legs to say uh, what a valuable critique it is to take the commandment, uh, thou shalt not steal and apply it to uh, vast inequities of income and, uh, and uh, vast inequities of access to uh, property. And affordable housing, absolutely. You know, the, the, um, I think that that is a, a completely fair way to read that commandment, um, especially as someone who is a, a reform rabbi. I guess I'd say I'm a reform rabbi. I don't really subscribe to any particular movement, but I'm a non-orthodox rabbi, let's say. And so I, I already have made the decision not to live under the legal sanction of any rabbinic authority. So at best, I, I can only bring to bear the ability to uh, use hermeneutics to say this, sure, is, sure, sure, this sure. is what the commandment actually means. Um, and so as I, more, I, I, I may have put the question in, in, a, in a less than, than clear way, um, because the, the way that I've heard some conservative folks read it is, is not as a push against inequality, but actually as a point of legitimation for inequality and saying that thou shall not steal implies that there is a uh, a priori valid ownership to particular pieces of land and so uh, or assets or resources and, and so you're saying you've heard this from you're saying you've heard this from Christian conservative Christian thinkers I've, I've heard uh, evangelicals make that point and I'm wondering it one is there an analog and kind of conservative Jewish ways of, 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 of mobilizing the command, because of course, any sort of Christian interpolation, interpretation of that is, um, you know, kind of late stage uh, re readings of, of the text. Yeah, no, I think they're, I think they're wrong. I think, I think th those, that type of evangelical thought, uh, you know, this is really, the, this is going way down a rabbit hole. So let's, let's not weigh in on an evangelical thought. Let me just say, <laughs> it, 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 it just conservative evangelical thought. It, it wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's no validity to that argument. You you yourself raised it early in the conversation. The Jewish ethical tradition drives us toward that statement. Even the most conservative 
Jew who is observant could not argue that there is an inherent right to to a person for private property. It does it's it doesn't exist as a category. When you have the great equalizer of the Yovel of the Jubilee, um, uh, there is no such thing as private property. It's it's a temporary lease that we have at best. That's what it is. There's no way you could read it any differently. But for a, a period of time, yes, you're you're the steward of that property. You own it in in quotes, um, and so therefore stealing it is wrong. Um, but that's an entirely different way to look at it than that it's a God-given right of yours, you know? And apropos of taking the long view, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I would argue on a certain level, uh, uh, since we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, stacking the court or, or mm-hmm. perhaps, perhaps uh, uh, getting rid of electoral college, or this all speaks to um, constitutional questions um, and again, this speaks to the, I think this speaks to the, the, the urgency of all of, you know, DSA or any other political organization that cares about these issues to organize around it. We need a new constitution, actually, in this country. Um, you know, everything is out of whack. Uh, and so we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by the creator of certain alien rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness right there. You know, right there, that statement just from the Declaration of Independence is is so deeply problematic in terms sure. of what American values actually are. That th- those words are used to justify, you know, uh, uh, nameless oppressions done yeah. in the name of those who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So all of that has to be reconceptualized. And that's going to take, that's the project of the next 50 to 100 years. Yes, and um, I, I want to pick back up on on, on your thread of um, pushing back um, assertively, and I think convincingly, that um, appealing to uh, the thou shalt not steal command as an attempt to um, uphold structures of private property and give them divine sanction, um, your response to that, which, which I think is a, is a, is a fair one, uh, is not only that the command is not theologically convincing, but that there's a kind of contingent trusteeship or stewarding of, of land that we see, um, or that is at least implied by Jubilee traditions, uh, and maybe even by um, talking about kind of the earth being the Lord's and the, and the fullness thereof. Um, you know, what, what also I think is, is critical there, when, when you talk about, um, you know, the Declaration of, of Independence, for instance, you know, I, I think a part of the beauty of... Um, what we see in Jewish interpretive traditions for sure, uh, and also in political interpretive traditions more widely, uh, you spoke of the Declaration of Independence, is that you see everyone from the Black Panthers to uh, women suffragettes appealing to the Declaration of, of, of Independence, uh, even given all of its blemishes uh, to move um, in, uh, in quite radical uh, directions. And so I, I say that to say, even as I, um, want to resonate uh, heavily with your your call for deep constitutional reimagining. I also want to suggest that in in our founding documents, as we have them, all of the deep, profound concerns about how they uphold um, slave-holding society, and and we can walk all the way down the list, patriarchy, there's still um, 
a politically advantageous strategy of internal criticism of taking in the documents as we have them and kind of rewards a more equal, a more just uh, d- democracy. So, so just just not maybe a friendly until, amendment, perhaps there. Not until the Democrats get a much stronger spine if they win and stack the court. I mean, because you know Amy Coney Barrett is a radical, and uh, and you're talking six a, a conservative to, radical for, for for sure. Conservative radical, yeah. So you're talking six to three. The only way you you the only way you fix that you know, is, is by having the, the, the guts to stack the court and to push back in that other constitutional direction. There's a great piece on originalism uh, on NPR either this morning or yesterday. I don't know. It's all blurred together, right? But just it's, it's very frightening uh, the way some people, obviously, and now a majority on the court, uh, is going to read that document, not it, with the generosity that you just described it, not, not in the Com- Complete agreement, complete agreement on that point. So yeah, and and, and want to affirm David's point. Uh, happy to work with, with comments as well as questions since the, the comments appear to be the uh, folks' preferred way of, of intervening. Uh, certainly, uh, given the Constitution's origin, uh, familiar with it, the three-fifths clause, and uh, they, they made the point, David makes the point provocatively, uh, Jews being uh, no fifths. Um, you know, we, we need to get beyond just kind of a uh, electoral reformism and, and the Constitution solely, which is a part of why I mentioned Luxembourg's um, tradition yeah. of arguing for worker self-organization within but beyond parties, within uh, and beyond unions. And so, David, I take you to be uh, astutely pointing to maybe the limits of a kind of um, maybe perhaps the urgency as well as the limits of a kind of constitutionally driven um, reform strategy um, as important uh, as it is for, for, for sure. Um, want, want to um, begin to kind of c- conclude and, um, and Rabbi Bachman certainly love for you to give uh, some kind of closing words and, and thoughts. Uh, one thing that I, I definitely want to share with as much uh, passion, urgency as I can, is that uh, DSA is uh, currently in the midst of a uh, 100K recruitment drive, uh, which you can find out by going to uh, dsausa.org and find out about. Uh, I think the current numbers are somewhere around 70,000 or so. Uh, and the reason the recruitment drive matters, and if you're not a member, I uh, would encourage you to do so, is because um, conversations like uh, tonight. Uh, ballot initiatives, which DSA chapters are working for across the country, uh, candidate races to get, uh, whether it's someone like, you know, Mondaire Jones or Jamal Bowman or, um, you know, folks in the state assembly, state senate, all of those things um, are possible conditions for realizing a political economy that, um improves the lives of workers if we have an independent, densely mobilized base of power that can push the legislature, push um, administrative uh, rule of agencies in a more just and a more equitable direction, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying that, you know, you you taking part in this effort uh, and inviting your auntie, your uncle, your friend, your brother, your neighbor, your sister, your sibling, uh, really helps to make a transformative difference. So, so that's my uh, 100K uh, sign up to be a member of DSA uh, pitch. Uh, and if we're going to, this is me moving towards the um, 
the theme of, of our conversation uh, tonight. If, if tikkun olam and being the repairer of the and the restorer of streets to live in is to be a robust and realized tradition, uh, it certainly takes uh, a chorus and collective to do that kind of deep repairing of a capitalist, racialized, gendered economy, uh, which is designed, to your point, Rabbi Bachman, in many ways to not work in the interests of the dispossessed, of the marginalized, of those who are other, uh, as lamentably uh, Jewish folks have been um, in far too many instances. Uh, Rabbi, I would love for you to give uh, some, some closing words and, and thoughts here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to sh- I, I, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, I'll start with humor and then end serious. Uh, the phrase tikkun olam <clears throat> comes from one of the oldest Jewish prayers that we have, the Aleinu prayer. It's how we close all of our services and we bow and we bend to the sovereignty of God overall. And the phrase that's deployed uh, in that moment is to repair the world or to fix the world um, under the kingship of heaven, which in a way goes back to what we were saying at the beginning that, you know, the tikkun olam, the original tikkun olam message becomes uh, the idea that we, we don't worship idols, that we're all one in our faith toward God all over the world. It's, it's, a, it's actually a unifying principle. Yeah. Uh, it's ended up becoming a kind of substitute for social action, social justice, doing good deeds and things like that. So there's this joke of, you know, the, the uh, 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 reform synagogue takes a trip to Israel and they, someone raises their hand and says to the tour guide, how do you say tikkun olam in Hebrew? That the idea has become so embedded that Jews don't even realize that it's that it's that it's a Hebrew word. It's become such a principle of liberal Jews doing good in the world, um, yeah. which is just so, so short of its liturgical context. Yes, yes. So I want to share because I th- oh host can uh, all right. Well, for another time, uh, my great grandfather. This is what I want to close with. If if it's possible for me to share, great. Um, if not, um, we can send it out to folks for sure at, at, after this. Awesome. So if uh, oh good, I can. Yeah, you get to see it. Thank you so much for letting me do this. So my great-grandfather was a, a, a refugee from pogroms. He, he went to Milwaukee in 1899. This is a Yiddish pamphlet. He, uh, <clears throat> he was the head of the, um, the, uh, the Yiddish Peddlers Union. Uh, he was an activist organizer. Uh, he had a burlap bag factory. Um, and um, he was very much interested in um, supporting his workers with a with a much stronger agenda than the other Yiddish peddlers union. Which I mean, why are there two Yiddish peddlers unions in Milwaukee? But nevertheless, um, and um, I bring this up because I, mean, I think this is one such uh, this is one such example uh, in which the Yiddish essentially. Uh, announces, and you can see it's printed by, uh, it's, it's union printed at the bottom. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's an artifact of family history that, um, you know, that I love to share as an example of, he was a, in, in, within uh, the, a generation, he comes to America, his grandson, my father, uh, serves in, this is his draft card from 1941, serves in, oh. the second, serves in the Second World War and moves up the ranks of American society. And the, 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 the challenge here, I think, for Jews today is to understand and recognize that 
organizing as Jewish workers was a stage, if you will, of Jewish moral involvement in the political landscape of America. And um, I think that there is an infinite number of lessons to be learned from those earlier stages of our activism that that makes us natural moral allies of people who are still struggling to be free. And again, in my mind, the greatest example of that, besides actual history that we can point to, is the biblical line that we've mentioned a number of times this evening, right? This principle that undergirds everything we're talking about. We're commanded to be kind to the stranger, to care for the widow, the orphan, the stranger, because we were strangers in a strange land. It kind of, it recognizes that just because you advance out of one stage of economic peril, you are obligated, going back biblically, obligated to continue to care for those less fortunate. It's a part of the covenant. It's, or we would say it's a part of the social pact. Sure. And so, and, and so the invitation to share this conversation tonight and think about it both broadly and specifically has just been an enormous uh, privilege and blessing. And I, I can't thank you enough for, for inviting me to join you. It, it has been a, a deep delight to be in, in conversation with you, Rabbi Buckman. Um, one quick thing before we hop off, I'm noticing that um, as I was looking at the, the chat that a number of questions did in fact migrate to the Q&A channel. Uh, so I uh, lamentably missed some of them. Some of those questions from the chat migrated onto the Q&A um, thread. Some of them did not. Uh, we can definitely, um, if, if I can maybe commit you on, on the spot, Rabbi Bach, if you don't mind, um, if we can maybe capture some of these questions in between you and I, maybe we can move through some of them uh, and send like an email response to folks just to make yeah. sure that those who um, stayed on the line, we can kind of engage there. Uh, is that all right? Yeah, totally. hundred percent. Yeah. Thanks so very much. And, and thanks to everyone who, who joined us. Um, y'all have a great evening and uh, we'll be back on uh, the third Thursday of November the 19th uh, for our, our next conversation. Uh, everyone have a great evening and a deep joy to, to be yeah, in conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.